You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline, yet always bouncing back, the Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with Stage Left.NYC and Stage Left, the podcast. Hi, Rob. Happy spring. Happy spring. Spring has sprung in New York. I don't know where you're where you are, where you're listening, but it's uh, it's certainly springy here. Well, this week's episode is a long time in coming. When we launched The Fabulous Invalid back in 2018, we had a mission to talk to everyone who worked in the theater, not just actors. And we've set about doing just that. We've spoken to almost everyone, but there was a gap, and we finally fill that today. Yes, yes. Well, you know, Jamie and I have a shared obsession with the orchestrations of musicals. So today's a big day. We are finally going to chat with an orchestrator, Broadway's very own Charlie Rosen. Oh my God. And the thing I love about, I mean, he is so prolific. And even if you've never heard his name, you will never forget it after listening to today's podcast. And you do not know how much of his work you actually know. He's quite prolific. Uh, But before we get to Charlie, I I do have to do a take two. This was a segment that we used to do. Uh, in the past where we would correct uh, a mistake. And this one's really just about an omission. Um, On our episode about selling the show, where we talked about Broadway poster art, I mentioned the importance of uh, partnerships that nonprofit theaters had made with artists like James McMullen for Lincoln Center Theater and Paul Davis for the public. But I left someone out. Paula Shear of Pentagram, uh, the design firm, uh, had created the iconic and landmark visual identity for the public theater back in the mid-1990s. And we talked about it, but I didn't name her. So I wanted to make sure that we gave Paula uh, the credit for um, the incredible work that she did then, which, you know, has gone on to, you know, sort of influence graphic design for theatrical promotion and cultural institutions like across the world ever since. So Paul is a major force in the the selling of the show, the branding of institutions, uh, and as a graphic artist, um, certainly with Pentagram, one of the you know biggest firms. So I just wanted to get that off my chest. Do you feel better? I do. I really do. Good. Really do. I'm glad. Well, and, and you know, I mean, the noise funk, I, that poster is yeah. every time we're at the public and we see that poster, we both remark how great it is. And yep. well, well, there's, so there's a, there's a whole gallery of her work, um, you know, and that whole brand identity, um, you know, on, on display at the public. So when we're all back, uh, make sure you stop when you're at the public next to, to take it all in. All right. Well, if we're doing take twos, I suppose I have one too. I, I wasn't okay. going to do this. I was going to let it slide, but but you know, people have noticed, and I think it's important that that I that I I fess up too. There have been a couple of instances on past shows where I have said on the West End and not in the West End. And mm. what's funny is I know better, right? Not only not only did we have this conversation with Tracy Bennett, who is a very well known actress who works in the West End, 
Um, we had this conversation. And yet I made the mistake once. You and I clocked it. And I was like, oh God, all right. You know, we didn't we didn't fix it, which was it's just on us. And then the next show that we recorded, I even wrote down in the West End, right? Because I wanted to get it right. Because again, words matter. And when I said it, I even said, on the West End. Like I <laughs> emphasized it because I wanted the world, you know, the, the few people who are paying attention as they should to know that I knew the difference and I said it wrong again. And so I apologize for that. Great. Well, we've both, uh, you know, sort of done our confessional. I guess we're, you know, we're both raised Catholic. So that was our confession portion of this episode. Um, so let's get on to the interview. Um, this week's guest, as we said, Charlie Rosen. Um, made his Broadway debut at the tender age of 18 back in 2008 <laughs> when he served in the pit of Jason Robert Brown's musical 13. Since then, he's put eight more Broadway shows and at least five off-Broadway shows under his belt as a musician, conductor, composer, music director, music supervisor, and orchestrator. He does it all. Uh, Charlie's most recent Broadway gig before the shutdown was as a co-orchestrator of Moulin Rouge, the musical, for which he's picked up his first ever Tony Award nomination, uh, the first of many, I suspect, to come in his oh, long many, career many. ahead. Um, beyond Broadway, Charlie is a prolific force on the music scene in New York as an instrumentalist, producer, and all-around music man. Um, as we'll talk to him about, I'm sure, he plays 70 instruments. Um, he's led two big bands and you know produces commercial soundtracks. He music directs concerts. He really does it all. And I just have to say, he also orchestrated A Strange Loop, which Ugh. you and I are both obsessed with. Obsessed and with, yes. The, the man is brilliant. You're going to love him. Here he is. Thank you so much for joining us. To kick us off, you wear so many musical hats. You're an orchestrator, musician, musical director, composer, and so much more. So I have to ask, when you're at a cocktail party and somebody asks mm -hmm. you what you do, how do you answer them? You know, I usually say that I'm like a musical Swiss army knife is like the first thing I say. I'm like, well, I'm kind of a musical Swiss army knife. Uh, you know, I, I'm a musician. I play, but also I do all things like creatively music. Which, you know, like you, and then I sort of rattle off the things you just rattle off. And like, usually people recognize a couple of those things, <laughs> depending on what area of uh, work they're in. <laughs> you know? so, so that's that answer. Well, one of the things that I think is often a mystery to people um, is orchestrations, um, you know, from that list that we just uh, 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 shared. So, you know, I'm wondering if you could share with us, you know, from your perspective as someone who actually um, is an orchestrator, you know, what exactly it is that an orchestrator does. Totally. Uh, you know, what's funny about the word orchestrator before I begin is there's really only like two areas of the music business in which we really still use that word. It's a little antiquated and it's Broadway and film scoring. Huh. Those are the only places where you real have like people use the term orchestrator. And, you know, in other areas of music, it's like it's an arranger or, you know, even a producer uh, or, you know, any, any songwriter to a degree, like everybody is practicing orchestration. But theater and film scoring are the only scenes in which there is a defined orchestrator. The term orchestration, what it means really is sort of like the way I describe it is if the composer of a show or a songwriter or whatever plays the piano and sings a song, they're giving you like a line drawing of what they want. And the orchestrator has a palette of colors at their disposal to illustrate the drawing and fill in the details, color it, add background, add foreground, you know, add, add, add texture. Uh, add style, you know, anybody could make a line drawing of a stick figure and then you could you could take paints and make it into a Picasso or a Monet or a whatever, you know, you could like use paint to then uh, give it a, a genre or a time period or a feel or a style. That's what orchestrators do with music. So that that's basically what it is. And the the guidelines of it are dictated by like, what style of music are we going for? How much money do we have and how many musicians can we have in the show? You know, and so we work within those guidelines to illustrate the score. And my other brief thing that I'll say about that is the very famous orchestrator, Robert Russell Bennett, legendary theater orchestrator, said that uh, orchestrators would not be great orchestrators if they didn't also consider themselves to be composers. Mm -hmm. And so there really is like a lot of overlap between where the role of the composer ends and the orchestrator begins. And in theater music teams, you'll have, you know, orchestrators and dance arrangers and 
uh, vocal arrangers and all of those jobs are all orchestration in a way. But the orchestrator is the one who actually takes the pen to paper and says, no, this French horn is going to be playing this. When you're taking that pen to paper, what kind of information are you getting from the composer and from the dance arranger and all the other people in order to do your job effectively and also translate what I'm assuming the composer may or may not be expecting to hear? Yeah, two really great questions. And the first uh, I will explain is there is a dictionary definition uh, difference between the word arranger and, and orchestrator, and oftentimes they're interchangeable. And both of those skills apply to both places. Uh, but again, in Broadway, we, we separate them. In its purest sense, arranging is changing the form and the overall shape of music. So like adding sections, adding the melody, changing the chord changes, time signature, key signature, you know, verse, adding a chorus, adding a dance break, adding an interlude, adding a, you know, big picture structural changes are arranging. And then orchestration is once you have the timeline, what happens within the orchestra moment to moment, right? And so if you work from the top down, all those big picture structural things need to be in place first in a Broadway show before the orchestrator can get their hands on it. So the work, because it's so, the workflow is so linear in a Broadway show, which is why you have orchestration. Uh, so, you know, the composer writes it, the arranger, uh, if it's not arranged by the composer, because some composers, you know, in a sense, arrange as they go and they say, I know I want the song to go like this. Here's my dance break. I wrote a dance break. I wrote an interlude, I wrote a reprise, I wrote a whatever. Uh, some composers do all that. And some composers also orchestrate. Some composers write the song and then the dance arranger takes their song and the director says, we need a dance break here. And the dance arranger says, cool, I'm gonna listen to that melody and I'm gonna do a variation on it and compose, basically compose a new section of music. Then it gets to the orchestrator to like flesh out, take their palette and fill in the incredibly detailed line drawing that the arrangers have provided. So that's the workflow for sure. That's like 100% the workflow. And then the how and the like, the where the ideas come from of it is basically this as as somebody who is an orchestrator arranger producer whatever you want to call it you know <laughs> top line artist whatever the what we do is we hear a piece of music and we envision the unrealized potential in that piece of music right and that's based on years and years of listening and absorbing other music so that when you hear a certain melody, you go, ah, that evokes the following things in my grab bag of musical knowledge, this genre, these horn lines, this chord changes. And so it's about listening to someone play the piano and sing and, and hearing like, okay, I, I hear the potential of what you're going for and I'm gonna take it and run with it. You know, you're Tony nominated for your work uh, orchestrating Moulin Rouge, the musical. Yep. And that's, maybe one, you know, those, maybe one day that Tony Awards will happen. I don't I, know. <laughs> <laughs> we're all on the edge of our seat for that, right? Um, but I imagine that was a unique project because, you know, that's a score that has like more than 70 songs from 161 yeah. different authors and artists of yeah. you know, across all different ranges. And uh, yet you and your collaborators, you know, have made it sound like one cohesive score. So I'm, I'm yeah. curious, you know, with this, with that project in particular, like how did you go about collaborating with other orchestrators to, to achieve that? Totally. Well, the first I'll say the one thing that orchestration does really well is co create cohesion between different, you know, styles mm. and in shows when like shows like SpongeBob, where like every single, every song was a different artist, having a central orchestration was like the thing that brought it all together, you know? So that's, that's something that orchestration can do really well when all the other variables are so crazy we go okay but the orchestration is this this is the orchestration so that like keeps it all in a box uh moulin rouge was interesting because normally in a show if you do have multiple orchestrators you'll split it up by song like this orchestrator takes this song this person takes this song this person does these kinds of songs uh but this was a situation where they really wanted to treat it more like uh like creating an, an album wherein we first as a rhythm section, so like guitar, piano, keys, bass, drums, played all of the stuff unorchestrated, just played it like a band in band rehearsals and figured out what we're gonna do to bring all these songs and play them as a band. Uh, and then 
we had one of our orchestrators is like a track producer and like electronic producer uh, put in all of his sauce, you know what I mean? With electronic drums and synths and all this stuff uh, to give it that flavor. And then we had myself adding the horns and another person adding the strings. So these things happen in layers like they would on an album, mm. uh, which I think created a much more like uh, produced sound, you know, which is definitely what that show needs. And it needs to sound like gigantic and produced and huge. Uh, and so I think, again, by the process of saying like, we're going to figure this out as a unit rhythm section. And we know that the thing that will make it cohesive are the addition of these horn strings and produced elements. And that'll just be like the pot of the sound. We'll put everything in it. And like when it comes out, it's going to sound like one show because everybody was working together aesthetically as a unit, I guess is my answer. So with a score like that, though, where you're you're taking songs that are already out there in the world, right, where they already exist, or let's say if you're doing you know, a, a, a revival and you have the opportunity to revisit an existing score, do you have a preference or do you, you know, or, or is one harder than the other, you know, a, a new piece of music that no one's ever heard before hmm. versus one that, you know, you might have a relationship to and audiences mm -hmm. might have a relationship to? Yeah, and you know what's interesting about that question is that is actually an arranging question. You know what wow. I mean? Like, mm. There's obviously no Tony Award category for best arrangements. Yeah. Uh, but if there was, I mean, Moulin Rouge is an example of uh, orchestration. Yeah, of course, definitely. But arranging. I mean, these are all songs that we knew that have been complete before they were even orchestrated right. were completely rearranged and reimagined. Mm. And that's technically not orchestration that's arranging you know yeah, yeah. and so there isn't a category for that if if there was justin levine is the person who masterminded all those arrangements he should win for sure not to discount the fact that we all did a great job orchestrating it and we deserve it but uh i think the the real star of the orchestrations is actually the arrangements as answering your question whether it's more difficult to orchestrate an arrangement versus an original it's it's hard to answer that because it really does come down to arrangement you know if the arrangement is a clear idea then orchestrating it is easy mm -hmm. and in an original piece of music the arrangement is a clear idea because the composer wrote it and there it is in a cover it's like the question is how much of the original are we sticking to versus not and if we're not is there a dramaturgical justification as to why we're not and if there is, if there's a seed of that, that makes orchestrating it easy because you go, okay, the original is this, you're going for this. And now that I hear this, again, I can pull from my bag of tricks, all of these other ideas to flesh out this piece of music that are not just copying the original because you've made a strong choice in another direction. It gets hard when it's sort of wishy-washy or in the middle, you know, and it can't really decide if it is the same or if it's not. Then, it, you know, the orchestrations can sort of decide like, no, we're going to do something. You know, then the orchestrations can save it. But it really is an arranging question, I think, is the core of what you're getting at. Well, it's interesting. You know, Jamie and I had the experience of seeing um, last season, or who knows what season at this point, <laughs> um, West Side Story a couple of times. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, during its very long preview period, and uh, we would compare notes, you know, after each viewing, mm -hmm. um, right. you know, to see what Jonathan Tunick had done differently over the course of over those previews and most notably, you know, um, somewhere, the song somewhere was radically different every time was we it? saw it. I didn't, yeah. I didn't get to see it. I didn't yeah. See and it was, it was so interesting how, you know, your, your, your point about the, the dramaturgical purpose, right. About how right. the, the vision of this, you know, new, new version of the show would inform how that song would be orchestrated literally. Right. Uh, and probably arranged too, now that I'm learning right. the distinction between the two. Um, well, I've just mentioned Jonathan Tunick. I'm wondering, you know, you said so much of orchestrating is is knowing, you know, what's come before and studying those albums, those cast albums and being familiar with the scores. 
Uh, we're curious, you know, who are your orchestrator idols or just idols in the music arranger, you know, space? I personally, my favorite arrangers are sort of the like mid-century uh, mm. arrangers of large ensemble music and, and jazz and big band era stuff. So like Quincy Jones and like Nelson Riddle is a big one for me. Uh, and then like Sammy Nestico and Esquivel. And then uh, why, why am I totally, I can't believe I'm blanking right now. Um, Henry Mancini, of course. Oh, that's mm. I can't believe I blanked on Henry Mancini. Mancini, <laughs> you know, a big one. Lalo Schifrin, um, and then like I grew up playing jazz and stuff. So like a big Duke Ellington and Count Basie and Buddy Rich, and like that's like where I came from. And then of course, like I, I love classical music. So like all of the and, and you know in classical music there were no orchestrators because the composers were doing the orchestration. So right, right. You know you can appreciate their composing and their orchestrating. And I'll also go on a little bit of a diatribe and say that in Robert Russell Bennett's book. He talks about the history of orchestrators in the theater. And it's mm. funny, uh, it's actually kind of a, a you know, we, we call song, you know, we call composers of shows are called composers, which is kind of a holdover from the opera days when uh, like opera composers used to write their opera and be like, here's my opera. It's done. <laughs> you know, like I orchestrated it. It's done. Here it is. Do it. And, uh, you know, now we, ca we call them composers and they're usually songwriters. And so like we have these orchestrators that do function a lot of the times like an additional composer that's just a little bit of a side note there yeah so I'm, I'm mainly influenced by like large ensemble arrangers from the 20th century you know that's kind of like where i go to uh but of course like i mean who could not love tunic's work and, and michael <laughs> starobin's work you know on a, I just like that's the sunday in the park with george orchestrations i think is like the the peak of orchestrational ability in the theater it's just he crushed that I'm listing non-theater people because I feel so in the theater scene that yeah, I like, yeah. I want to be cool and not geek out about my, my peers, but also like, Jesus Christ, like Michael Starobin's so fucking talented, you know? <laughs> yeah. If ever there was a safe space to geek yeah. out about Jonathan Tunick, yeah. this is, yeah, right? this is yeah, that exactly, yeah. place. By the age of 30, you had nine Broadway shows under your belt. Just for perspective, Patti Lapone has 11. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's, that's hot stuff. You began working as a teenager with Jason Robert Brown on his musical 13 at the Center Theater Group in Los Angeles. Yep. It's, it's right there behind is. you. It's but on the I'm, wall. You have a, 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 you're in a lovely room full of, of posters of your work, I presume. Zoom. Right, exactly. um, I can't quite see all of them. But right. how did that come about? How, how at a very young age did you start working with Jason Robert Brown on 13? Yeah, it's sort of one of those right place, right time, you never know stories wherein I was in high school. I was a sophomore in high school in LA <laughs> and uh, the Music Center and Center Theater Group had this like scholarship for high school students called the Spotlight Awards for classical and jazz music. And I auditioned as a bass player to get a scholarship and I like didn't make it not even close. Like I didn't get past the first round, nothing happened. And then like a few months later, I got an email or my mom got an email, I should say, from Center Theater Group saying, hey, we're doing a workshop of this new musical and we need teenage musicians. Like we know you were in the Spotlight Awards, so you have a teenage musician kid, bring them down. We're gonna have an open cattle call of a room full of teenage musicians and we're gonna put a band together for the show. And then that's what we did. And I went in and I was like, who's that guy with a really long face and the kind of sloppy hair? <laughs> I remember thinking, like, <laughs> you know, and like, who's that bald guy with the ponytail? That's his bass player, you know, if you know him. Uh, and um, yeah, and he, we just one by one put bands together, like, you know, like a chemistry read or whatever you would have. And there were multiple rounds that day where they eliminated people. And yeah, I I think I started on drums and I was playing all these instruments and they're like, oh, we gotta have this guy. So when I was a sophomore, I played guitar in a workshop of it in LA. And then when I was a junior, they produced it properly at the Kirk Douglas. No, the Mark Taper. <laughs> I say the Kirk Douglas, because when I was a senior in high school, uh, Senator Theater Group produced Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson at the Kirk Douglas and they called me to play bass in it. I was only 17. I think Alex Timbers was like really 
excited and into the the idea of having like a 17 year old bass player in his show So, yeah, I, I mean, I really got super lucky because both of those shows transferred to Broadway a year apart from each other at the same theater, both mm -hmm. of the Jacobs. Uh, so right after high school, I moved to New York to do 13 the Musical to be in the pit on Broadway. And then that closed in December and I went to Berkeley. I had deferred my school, you know, went to Berkeley for a semester. Then Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson transferred to Broadway. I moved back to New York, you know, <laughs> and so like after that, I had these two solid foot in the doors shows of this like new musical theater scene and that's kind of how it all got started you know i started meeting other young composers in the scene and like getting to know them and the ball started rolling you know take a breath mentioned in your answer that you um, you played a lot of instruments and that was you know appealing to them uh, you play upwards of 70 instruments so <laughs> I'm curious the easier answer is what don't you play okay yeah great question you know I stay away from double reed instruments so I don't I don't <laughs> fuck with oboe I don't fuck with bassoon. <laughs> Those are, you know, my mom is a bassoon player so I don't say this out of ignorance I know I've tried and I've decided that I will leave that to the more detail oriented and neurotic folks out there who want to deal with that life. It's not for me. Um, and you know, there's like, of course, plenty of like uh, instruments in other cultures that I like don't play and would love to play one day and would love to travel the world and learn about all the instruments and take lessons. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I just, I just found that as an orchestrator, the more instruments I can even get any kind of passing ability on, any and play any basic note and just play a note well and a scale well and a melody well the better i can do at that the better orchestrator you know i'm going to be and the more language i'll have to communicate with the people who play those instruments what's the most unusual instrument you've you've orchestrated into something yeah i i think the obvious answer there is is the theremin okay so, what's the theremin for those that don't know so the theremin is an, the one of the earliest electronic musical instruments it was invented in Russia by a scientist known as Leon Theremin, and it was a huge revolution. It was invented in 1920, and it took the new classical world by storm. It was this instrument that it functions with uh, like electromagnetic waves, basically. You don't touch it to play it. There's a stick, and the closer you get to the stick in the air, the higher the pitch. So it's sort of like a violin that you don't touch. And it's incredibly difficult. It's so difficult to play in tune because it's so sensitive the closer you are to the stick. You know, and there's two sticks and one stick is volume and one stick is pitch, you know? So you go like, uh, this is a podcast that people can't see, but I'm holding my arm up like a stick <laughs> and I'm moving my other hand closer to it. So it's like, mm, mm, you know? So the closer your hand is to the stick, the higher the pitch. It's, it's I, I think everybody should look up theremin and like look up an artist named Clara Rockmore, who is this incredible, beautiful theremin soloist who plays classical theremin. It was kind of co-opted in the 50s and 60s by like B, by, by sci-fi movies and, and actually as early as the 40s with The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, the Bernard Herrmann score. Uh, if you hear it, you'll go, oh, that's that sci-fi instrument. It's like very popular in sci-fi, like, mm -hmm, okay. you know, film scores. Uh, and so when I orchestrated Be More Chill, Joe Iconis wanted to merge like the worlds of sort of like rock, pop rock and like like funk and fun and super fun stuff with this sort of like B sci-fi movie sound because the of the element of the supercomputer character in the show. And so we decided that it was really important that we have a theremin in the show representing the character of the supercomputer.
from what I could tell that two years ago when I looked it up, it is the first Broadway musical with a narrative book to have a theremin because there was a review that had theremin in it in the 20s at one point. It was like a review of popular songs that had theremin oh, wow. in it. So it's yeah. the first book musical to have a theremin orchestrated in it that wasn't played by a synth because it's very easy to replicate on a computer. Right. But we are the only book musical to have an actual thereminist play in the pit. Wow. And what, was it hard to find the uh, the a, a player who, who knew? Not only was it hard to find a player, yeah. We only had the money for six musicians. And so the trumpet player specifically had to learn to play. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's incredible. <laughs> it was, I feel so terrible for all the subs of that trumpet player who had to learn to play the theremin. It was a total nail biter. All of them were like, oh, God damn it. You know, yeah. it's so hard to play in tune. But now there's a scene of like five or six trumpet theremin players in New York as a result of this Broadway show. So that's fun. That's amazing. So as the show is licensed, is it is it in the license score that you need to play a theremin? Okay, you know what's funny is the original orchestration from like three or four years ago from yeah. when it was out of town is the licensed version right now because mm -hmm. that okay. was the version that got the show popular. Yeah. And that version had the theremin in it. It's yeah. the same trumpet player. And um, <laughs> they didn't really... It all happened so fast that we didn't even, I didn't even have a moment to be like, wait a minute, that's a bad idea. Who's going to play that? What high schooler is going to play that? You know? And so it stayed in, like, it just happened so fast. And, yeah. and I get emails like a couple times a year that are like from a high school theater director that are like, Mr. Rosen, is there anything we can do to not have a theremin? I'm like, yes, it's fine. You can replicate it on a synth with these yeah. settings. You know? <laughs> that's amazing. Well, <laughs> Very generous of you to be available to those, uh, you know, looking for that 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 help and that permission. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm so glad we went down that road. Thank you. Yes, that yeah, was great. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm wondering, you know, sort of, sort of going back into your childhood. You mentioned, you know, your mother uh, is a musician. I believe your father is also a musician. So I'm I'm curious, when did you, you know, sort of start getting interested in music, or maybe it was just always, you know, around. Yeah, it was definitely always around, but my dad likes to talk about a, a point of pride that he felt like he never, they never pushed me into anything. They always mm -hmm. just sort of were like, oh, you're interested in this, we'll cultivate this. My parents figured out that I had perfect pitch when I was three, like wildly enough, because I started to be able to tell white keys and black keys apart on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. They were like, oh, that's probably perfect pitch. <laughs> uh, and so they started me at piano lessons, like basically at age three or four. Uh, and I really took to the, you know, I really loved playing the piano when I was younger and Eventually I got a little older and started hating practicing, but you know, they were like, no, no, you gotta stick with it. You do like it. You just don't like when we tell you to do things. And they were right. They, because they were both musicians who played a number of different instruments themselves, they were able to be like, hey, why don't you take some flute lessons as you know, in elementary school and oh, you should take some cello lessons in elementary school. And then when I was in middle school and wanted to get into playing in bands with my friends and wanted to be a rock star, you know, like you do, <laughs> they were like, oh, great. Okay, we'll buy you a drum set. You know, they, I luckily had parents who were very supportive of like, oh, you want now you want to play the bass? Oh, we will buy you a cheap bass. Like, okay, we'll get you bass. You know, and they had guitars because they played guitars already. So I just was lucky to grow up in an environment where there was tons of instruments around me already. My mom's a woodwind doubler. So we had flutes and saxes and clarinet and all, all around. My dad has a pipe organ in our house in LA and he plays piano and accordion and banjo and guitar and stuff. So, you know, luckily I, I, I was already self-interested in it and I was in an environment where they knew how to guide hmm. the path, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, have to, I, I just have to ask about a pipe organ in your parents' house. Where, yeah. like, where does one put a pipe organ? Okay. So my, uh, parents built in my house in Chatsworth, they built a separate building in the backyard of this house that is essentially like the pipe organs house. It's like a, it's maybe like a, I think 800 square foot big room, you know, and in the back of the room, there's a false wall. And behind that there's like hundreds and hundreds of pipes. And then the pipe organ sits in the center of the room and my dad plays the pipe organ and they'll screen silent movies and he'll play the pipe organ along with it and stuff. So yeah. that that's where I was going with this because I did read that your father would accompany silent movies and I wasn't quite sure like did he do it at the Egyptian was right. there a film series that right. or, or but now I know you do it, it in your himself. home yeah in, in our own home he would play <laughs> and he would play like you know he was a member of the Los Angeles Theater Organ Society so they'd go and like play at the Orpheum there's an organ there and I was just gonna yeah. say I yeah. I, I know right. that you, I knew yeah yeah right you know it. Yeah. And so, yeah, he was not a church organist. He was a theater, a theater organist specifically. And so, yeah, I had that. And that room also was like a great, you know, 
jam space or my my bands and my ska punk band, you know, and stuff. Wow. <laughs> okay, final organ question. Did yeah. he ever play the organ at the Castro Theater in San Francisco? Not that I know of. Okay. But I can't say with 100% uncertainty that at some point <laughs> in the 70s. He didn't. Right. He did, you know? <laughs> well, they're know. rare. They're not. It's not they're a rare. It's not a common thing. So I just yeah. thought that. It's okay. a small scene. It's a small scene and everyone knows each other in it. And so I would be surprised if he wasn't there at some point. As you've already described, you know, the, this opportunity with Center Theater Group, you know, came up and, and you know, you got this uh, incredible chance to, to work on two uh, new musicals that ended up in New York. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, as like a, as a teenager or as, you know, as a, even earlier in your 20s, you know, how did you imagine seeing yourself working a, as a professional musician or in this space um, if like Broadway wasn't always like the goal, but, it, you know, sort of kind of happened? Yeah. And it did kind of happen. You know, yeah. I, growing, growing up in L.A., my parents were theater fans. You know, we were always fans of the theater and we watched classic movie musicals, you know, and and it was around, but it wasn't like so much a part of my life that I was like, that's something I want to do. Right. You know, so I, I grew up like uh, loving jazz and playing big band in high school and being like, okay, well, I'm going to be a jazz musician. That's cool. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up going to college, you know, uh, I guess it wasn't really until, you know what happened? This is what happened. I did 13 the musical uh, and Jason Robert Brown was like is like a big supporter of French Woods Festival of the Performing Arts, the mm -hmm. summer camp, if you know of it. And he was like, you got to go to this camp. You're going to this camp. And like, you know, it's in the Catskills. I and my family were like, where? Like, we don't <laughs> want. OK, sure, I guess. But I went and that was the first time I was really exposed to like people who were very much a part of the New York scene locally, like theater scene, theater community and seeing a true like peer group of people who are like, this is what we love. You know, I mean, we did theater in high school, but it just isn't as much a part of the culture as it was when I finally got to the East Coast. And that summer as a, you know, seven, 16 year old, I sight read like 12 shows back to back. You know, you just, they just crank out musicals. And uh, that was my first exposure to being like, wow, this is just such beautiful orchestration and music and their program is so big. So they always have full orchestras in their pits. Mm. And I played West Side Story there and they had a full orchestra and it was like thrilling. It was thrilling, you know? I was like, holy shit, this is incredible. This is like life altering. And I think that was the moment when I was like, oh, I want to do this. Like, I want to create this music. You know, this is so overwhelming. And then I remember going into the city and we saw Spring Awakening, the original Broadway production. I, I saw the band on stage and I'm like, oh, that's an like, that's a thing we can do. Like, we can do this. Like, oh, wow. And so I think those two things combined were like, oh, I can have a career in this. And the other thing that really drew me to it was sight reading those 16 shows back to back they were all different genres mm. and i feel i've always felt like such a musical chameleon like i love so many different styles of music that it was like oh this is a scene of music where i can really flex all these different influences you know and not be like uh, you know and really be myself because i i, I just am such a criminal criminal mimic sometimes musically like <laughs> that's like so necessary in this art form so yeah. it's really a, a perfect home for me Wow. So it's that's sort of two different uh, episodes of Jason Robert Brown being, yeah. you know, someone who, you know, picked you, exposed you, you know, pushed you in, yep. in many different ways. And then obviously, yeah. you know, you two would go on to work together um, on Honeymoon in Vegas and yep. you know, Prince of Broadway. Prince and Broadway yeah. Is that a continuing, you know, sort of relationship that. Yeah, uh, we're always sort of like, you know, tangentially in touch. Yeah, I would yeah. say like we're, we're existing, you know, in, in parallel some, and planes <laughs> that sometimes intersect in like fun ways. Like there was there was a time when he sat in with my big band, you know, and we played uh, some songs of his that I arranged. And, you know, you know, we're always and I, pl I played with him at Subculture, you know, just sort of like always around. And like every once in a while, we just sort of like touch base. And uh, yeah, you know, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. So you've done Broadway shows, you've done off-Broadway shows, you've done concerts, uh, you've done some, you know, some TV work, you've done some film work. I understand you've done some, you know, some video game work. Is there any part of the music industry that that you've yet to sort of conquer that you're, you know, that that interests you? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I guess I would still love to like go on tour with mm. like a major performing artist who like performs with a large orchestra and, and like tours that's something that i've always loved is like playing all these performing art spaces you know with like a large ensemble and sort of got a taste of it last year last february i did i conducted and arranged and orchestrated titus burgess's carnegie hall show which was sort of like just like such an incredible feat of i don't know i just felt like this is a this is a, a thing to check off you know like this is a orchestra 
conducting at Carnegie Hall. And so like, I feel like my conducting career would be mm -hmm. something I would, I would like to explore more, you know, and really playing with orchestras and being commissioned by orchestras. That's, that's something I would really love to do. Um, and, you know, I have scored some films, but pretty, they're like, you know, low budget or indie films. I would love to like do a real major film score. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? With like a large yeah. hundred piece orchestra. I mean, that's everyone's dream. It doesn't happen that much anymore, but yeah. I would love to do that. And, and I, again, I've dipped a little bit into video, video game music, but really do more and more bigger games. So I guess the short answer to your question is there aren't a ton of areas that I haven't explored that I would like to, but I would like to go deeper mm. into these other mediums besides yeah. theater. And I'll always love theater, of course, <laughs> but you know, these sort of bigger singer songwriters that use big ensembles deeper into games, deeper into films. That would be amazing. Yeah. And I have to say, I was at Carnegie Hall that night and that was, a hell, of, that was a hell of a concert. That was wild, right? that <laughs> it was, was pretty great. amazing. I remember, you know, turning to my friends afterwards and being like, how did they put this together for one night? It felt like it, an insane amount of work. It was a Broadway show yeah. rehearsal process. It was, yeah. it was weeks. It was truly wow. weeks. Yeah. Yeah. What have you been doing uh, during the shutdown to keep busy? You were so busy prior to the shutdown with your big band and everything yeah. else and Moulin Rouge and obviously yeah. Carnegie Hall, which I love how you just sort of slip that in like it's no big deal. It's a very big deal. It was, it's a huge deal. It's it all happened huge so fast. Deal. I, I, like, I didn't really fully take it in because I was so focused on being like, okay, there's just so much to think about and make sure it goes right this evening because it's there's so many. I didn't really get a chance to like really – you know, so next time I go there, I'm going to be like, ah, whenever that is, whenever that is. What did you but, take a moment that night to let it sink in while you were on the stage of, or, or, or was it just trying to get through the concert? That's the thing is I, I did a little bit, but I didn't really have a chance to, because before during soundcheck, I was being pulled in so many different directions. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like during the show is like, you know, like hyper-focus and then the show's over and you're ushered. Everyone's like, well, you know, like I didn't really have a set check. I, I would have liked a chance for myself to just be like, wow, mm. I didn't totally get to do that. So I'll have to do that next time. McCartney You'll have to go back. Yeah. So as a, as a somebody, it sounds like is going 24 seven. What have you been doing with the last year to keep yourself busy? Yeah, it's, you know, the, I'd say the main thing that I've been able to do, which is really lucky for me is I sort of went into quarantine already having a lot of the skills that were going to end up being highly necessary for musicians to stay afloat, mm. you know, because I produce a lot of music from home because part of being a Broadway orchestrator means you also have to be able to produce tracks and, and make sounds and produce music from home and produce demos and make mock-ups, which are like, you know, how to make orchestral sounds using your computer. These are all skills that I had sending files around mixing. Like these are all skills that I had already luckily. So when it came time for the pandemic and every theater company was like, whoa, we need to do a virtual event. Oh my God, it's, you know, Broadway does this, Broadway does this, Broadway loves this person. It's this person's birthday. We're doing, oh, singers from home, everyone's from home. It was like, I, I was able to help them uh, create those tracks. And so I did like probably six or seven of those events, mm. uh, making backing tracks, communicating with singers, uh, telling them not to record in their bathroom if possible, you know, <laughs> things like that. Uh, so lots of track production and, and uh, stuff for virtual events. Uh, I also scored a film this summer that Billy Crystal started and directed uh, that was supposed to be done way before the lockdown, but then we ended up doing it like musician by musician in a studio and that was okay. Oh, wow. uh, and then most of it was recorded remotely from home. Uh, I also have another, uh, I have two big bands. I have the Broadway big band, which is what I talked about. Uh, and then I have a video game big band called the 8-Bit Big Band. Uh, who I, We had finished a third album basically, but had three songs left to record. So those were recorded remotely. Uh, shit, what else? I'm scoring, I'm scoring a podcast for Audible. You know, lots of like, uh, lots of, lots of sort of like track producing from home, scoring, arranging, remote sessions, uh, sending files around. I keep saying that it all sort of feels like one long logic session. I, for those who don't, logic is the software that we use to produce music. And so it's like, basically it's this, the day feels the same every day where you like boot up your computer, stare at it for 10 hours and then watch a movie and go to bed, which is getting old. Uh, but I have been lucky to stay busy, definitely lucky to stay busy. And that, you know, the sort of streaming and album and YouTube ad revenue from the ape at big band has, has luckily gotten to a point where it can almost pay my rent. So I was never super worried about losing my apartment. Uh, but you know, I, I've been busy. I've been, I've been fairly busy, but I'm excited <laughs> for live performance again. That's to really break up this monotony again. Yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. 
Oh, yes. Well, one thing that's um, I think going to be very clear is you know when we do are you know finally able to uh, have live performance again and all get back together in a room, you know the world has changed. Um, yeah. You know not only because of the pandemic, but also you know the industry confronting a very long overdue reckoning oh, yeah. with with reckoning. Uh, racial injustice and, and a lot of other inequities. You know, so I'm curious from the music side of things. You know, yeah. what changes would you like to see? You know, both now and when theater returns. Yeah, totally. That's a great question. Uh, I think we're finally having an, an interesting reckoning now where like they're, you know, the, the, we're no longer just saying theater, you need to make sure only the front facing part of your, you know, production is, it has equity in it. You know, only the part that the audiences will see, like we need right. to make sure that people are making decisions behind the scenes of, from a number of different backgrounds and opinions and, and roles. And, you know, that needs to ideally go all the way up to the people who own the theaters that might be a long shot for the time being since that there's so much gatekeeping and there's very few of them. But luckily what we are seeing is people really become conscious of creative teams uh, and having a number of different viewpoints and opinions and, and upbringings and cultures in the room uh, as opposed to just in the cast, you know, or just in the pit, the pit also being like behind casting, like they're not as, a, as, as racially and gender diverse as casting because casting is so front facing mm. pits, there's, there's, there's a large push to get pits to be better. And that was, that started happening before all this and is now really happening in, in faster and faster. So I, I would like to see the hiring practices of pits change for sure. And the problem with that is again, much like theater owners, there's, there's still like a couple of gatekeepers, you know, primarily in the world of who hires Broadway pits and that, that can change and uh, for sure. And then creative teams and music teams and departments um, changing as well. And I have personal experience with this so far, you know, I, so I'm, uh, I'm working with Mark Shaman on Some Like It Hot, which mm. is coming to Broadway in 2022. Uh, and I'm the orchestrator. And at one point, uh, you know, they made a decision to be like, you know, in spite of all that's happened, we just really feel like we want to bring some people in, you know, from diverse cultures and backgrounds to these creative teams to just have uh, a, a bigger opinion in the room. And one thing they asked me was like, is there anything we can do on the music department, you know, to bring in some more racial equality to the thing. And I was like, well, you know, I have a really great friend who's an incredible orchestrator, uh, a great black musician friend of mine named Brian Carter. So I'm like, we should bring him in. We can orchestrate it together. So now we're both orchestrating that together. It's going to be really great. It's fun. He's like incredible. And, and what's cool about that is it really is like, I think people are finally being like, let's fix the, the pipeline issue of the scene in general, where it's like not people are unwilling to take risks on people that they don't know which is tough because then it creates this insular thing where like, you know, people who are in the jazz scene feel like, well, that's Broadway. And like, I don't even know how to get into that. You know, it's such a handshake backdoor thing where like, there's only a few people who do every show. And so they don't even bother. And of course there's like a ton more black musicians in jazz than there is in Broadway, you know? And so like, it's nice of them to be like, let's just take a chance on some outsiders that people who are on our team know will be qualified to do this. And, so yeah, you know, I'm I'm excited to see the changes that are occurring. I'm 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 cautiously optimistic. I'm cautiously <laughs> optimistic. You know, it's a good way to put it. I think we yeah. all are cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Well, this has been great. You have been so generous with your time and a delight to talk to. I I have one final question for you, um, yeah. and it's sort of a big picture thing. What what's your dream project? Hmm. Hmm. That's a great question. You know, I guess at some point I would love to compose a show. I don't write lyrics. I'd have to work with a lyricist. <laughs> but I, I feel as though I have a lot to say as a composer. And like I said, Robert Russell Bennett, you wouldn't be a great orchestrator if you didn't feel like you were also a composer. You know, so I would love to compose a show, specifically a show that stems from the orchestration. Like instead of being like we have a property that we need composed, being like, this is an instrumental orchestration that I think is really interesting and has, provides an incredibly unique palette of sounds. Let's work backwards and be like, now what's a story that really fits that? Like, I would love to write a show that works sort of from the music first, you know, and works outward from the work from the pit first, I think is a really interesting idea. Uh, so that's something I would love to do. And um, outside of that, the sort of medium term, probably fairly realistic dream project is I want to, I would like to take my video game orchestra on tour which might happen once this is all over. But the big the big sort of dream is like, yeah, 
I'd love to. I think I'd like to write a musical. Well, One we movie. look forward to your to your yeah. musical. I'd love to see it. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, thank, thank you so, so much. much. This has been terrific. Oh yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. As we settle into the Biden-Harris administration, now is a good time to visit Social Goods, an online store that offers a curated slate of statement-making merchandise that gives back to nonprofits tackling today's most pressing issues. Listeners of The Fabulous Invalid can go to social-goods.com and use the code FAB15, that's F-A-B-15, at checkout to receive 15% off your first purchase. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our archive of episodes and be sure to tune in next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.